On today's program, I'll talk to one of the authors of a new book that looks back at HBO's 50-year history and the cable channel's impact on pop culture. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a Shakespeare play that's been given a Latin twist. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the playwright behind a world premiere play that shines a light on the creation of the iconic Batman character. And I'll check in with the executive director of Three Arts to talk about the organization's ongoing efforts to help underrepresented artists. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. HBO turns the big 5-0 on November 8th. An estimated 375 subscribers had access to the channel when it debuted in 1972. There was a lot of excitement around this new offering known as Cable, but it's unlikely anyone involved in those early days could have predicted the impact the home box office channel would have on pop culture. Many commentators and critics have said we're in a golden age of television. Some even believe episodic TV has surpassed film as a storytelling medium. That's a a matter of opinion, a debate we're not going to get into, but there's no debate that networks and streaming platforms are investing more resources and bigger productions. And HBO's approach to programming is often cited as one of the reasons for that. The new book, It's Not TV, offers a comprehensive deep dive into the history and cultural influence of HBO. It was co-authored by veteran media reporters John Coblin and Felix Gillette. I recently caught up with Coblin to talk about the home box office channel's remarkable evolution over the past five decades. For certain age groups, HBO has just always been cable with such a novel concept in the the mid to late 70s, I have to imagine getting people to, to pay for a subscription to this new product was challenging. Did you dive into that much early in the research process? Uh, completely. I mean, what HBO, its its proposition was, we are going to be a paid subscription service. For decades, people were used to their entertainment being for free with commercials on it, whether it was on radio or whether it was on broadcast television. HBO is trying to do something different. And one of the ways that they entice people to sign up, okay, we're going to give you some Hollywood movies that had just been in theaters a few months earlier, and we're going to give you stuff that you can't watch on network television. You know, if a stand-up comedian does five minutes on The Tonight Show, we're going to let George Carlin do his full routine and say any curse word that he wants right here on our network. And this eventually worked. It took some time for HBO to get its sea legs, but once it did, they were really off to the races. I'm working on a a different piece about uh, the BBC's 100th anniversary, which is coming up, and I've always admired its approach to programming, so eclectic and and risk-taking. It was interesting to read about HBO's approach to programming in those early days. Lots of movies, comedy, some sports, and then some in-house created programming. Were some of those early programming decisions made out of necessity to, to fill out a schedule? Yes, indeed. I mean, just look at the name HBO, what it stands for. Home box office. What HBO's earliest programming executives believed was if there is something that you would have to go out to buy a ticket for, whether that's going to a concert or going to a comedy show or going to a boxing match, those are all things you buy tickets for. That's what HBO put on its airwaves. 
and as well as movies, both licensed movies from the Hollywood studios and made-for-TV original movies as well. So that's really how HBO started to get people in. And those programming efforts, they worked. But the thing that we all really know HBO for, episodic television, they wouldn't get into that in earnest, in a serious way, until the 1990s. Right. And the book really provides a lot of context there. I think... You know, a lot of people, a lot of casual TV watchers, they, they think of Sex and the City, Sopranos, maybe even Oz, the Larry Sanders show. But one of the interesting things I kind of gleaned from the book was, is Dream On really HBO's first scripted show hit? <laughs> you know what? It pretty much was. And that premiered in 1990. It was not a show that HBO owned. It was a licensed show. But Dream On, about a book editor living in New York, uh, recently divorced, who goes on a dating and casual sex spree, um, that was a success for HBO. It didn't entirely convince them to get into episodic television, but it also was, fun fact, created by two people named Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who four years after creating Dream On, they created another show for NBC about a group of New Yorkers living in the same apartment building and frequenting the coffee shop downstairs. (laughs) That show, of course, was called Friends. Never heard of it. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, The book dives into the development of a lot of these iconic shows that made HBO what it is. I just wanted to get your opinion. Is the Sunday night time slot on uh, HBO like the holy grail of showrunners today? Uh, Completely. I mean, it's funny. Right now, these days, the television landscape has never been more competitive. Netflix spends much more than HBO. Apple TV Plus, on a per-show basis, They spend more than anybody. Amazon just dropped a tremendous amount of money, around a billion dollars on this first season of its Lord of the Rings show. There are a lot of of competitors out there that are tough. And yet, and yet, HBO still remains at this point a cut above. We saw it in September at the Emmy Awards when HBO cleaned up. They, They won more Emmys than Netflix or Apple TV Plus or Disney. And they want a lot more Emmys, like a dozen more. Um, and one of the things that HBO has been really good at, finding shows that come out of left field. You know, Mike White, a couple of years ago, was talking to an HBO programming executive and proposed an idea. Why don't we do a show in a hotel? And it'll be sort of this upstairs, downstairs dramedy. HBO's executives, they were into it. And they said, all right, go with it. And it, because it was during the pandemic and it was, it was opening months of COVID, the single location of a hotel seemed really appealing to them because you could keep everybody in sort of a COVID bubble. And then all of a sudden, the White Lotus premieres, low expectations, and that becomes a hit, a huge critical hit for HBO. That then cleaned up at the Emmys a couple months ago. And, of course, the new season just premiered, and I've seen a few screeners. I have to say, it's very good. So, yeah, if you are the average showrunner uh, in Hollywood, There are a lot of good places to go to, but HBO is probably just a little bit above the rest. The book offers a lot of uh, behind the scenes of how the company changed over the years and survived multiple mergers. There's another one happening now. It seems like the AOL and AT&T deals didn't benefit HBO much. Just your opinion, could HBO have reached even greater heights of Time Warner just kept doing its own thing years ago? It probably would have been difficult because with Netflix upending the entire entertainment industry, there aren't going to be very many players in the media world, say, in 10 years. And Time Warner on its own, HBO's parent company, 
it was it was not big enough to really survive on its own. It was going to get purchased by somebody. In fact, as they were making a deal with AT&T, the phone company based in Dallas, which has no entertainment experience, and that mer- and that uh, that corporate takeover did not go well. Disney actually called up the Time Warner chief executive to inquire, "Hey, we're interested in you guys." But by that point, it was too late. AT&T that that deal that train was on the tracks already. So would Disney have been a better corporate owner for HBO? Probably. I mean, you never really can tell. These these mergers and corporate takeovers, there's always a big question mark uh, surrounding them. Discovery, which is HBO's new owner, they bought it from AT&T earlier this year. On the one hand, they do do content, so that's a more natural fit. On the other hand, this new company, Warner Brothers Discovery, they have a debt load of more than $50 billion, which needs to be paid down immediately. If all of a sudden Discovery comes to HBO in a year or two, it's like, let's look at that programming budget. Maybe you're spending a little too much. Once again, HBO could be in trouble, but they have survived one nearly fatal blow after the next over the last five decades. But HBO's future is uncertain. I feel like for those of us outside the business, you know, the HBO folks who just need to point to posters of Game of Thrones and Sopranos to prove their worth. <laughs> Completely. And that is the reason why AT&T, even though they really changed the culture over there, AT&T, they really, and they only owned HBO and HBO's parent company, Warner Media for a couple of years, but they went to great lengths to avoid messing with HBO's programming department because they did not want to be known as the company it screwed up HBO. So that was to HBO's benefit. But Discovery, that debt load is huge. So they could go ahead and say, you know what, we have no choice but to affect this programming budget. Or with that debt load being so big, they might have to sell again in a few years. That is a that is there's a lot of speculation within the media and entertainment industry that HBO within a few years could have yet another new corporate owner. You bring up, like, what could have been if this had happened in in the book? It also mentions there was this moment where HBO considered, or at least certain executives were looking at buying Netflix. It's true. Uh, in, the, in the mid-2000s, in the mid-aughts, uh, there was a proposal of, hey, look at Netflix, what they're doing with this DVD business. If we combine strengths, our programming with Netflix's incredible approach to DVDs, this could be make for a very interesting business. But just a few years earlier, when AOL took over HBO's parent company, H- AOL at that point in the early 2000s, they were the internet wonderkins. They could do no wrong. But that was one of the biggest disasters in American corporate history. So five years later, when this is proposal to buy Netflix, the new internet or technological wonderkin, there was a lot of PTSD from the AOL experience. So it was swiftly shot down, saying, no way, we are not going to buy Netflix. And of course, Netflix, within a few years, would become a behemoth in Hollywood. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with John Coblin. He's one of the co-authors of the new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. You cover TV and you've covered HBO over the years. So when uh, you partnered with your co-author, Felix Gillette, and you started the the research, did you uncover things that you didn't know before as you started working on this? There are so many things that I didn't know. uh, Because HBO's recent history, I've been covering HBO uh, in my day job at the New York Times for the last eight years. 
their 42 years of stuff before then. So yeah, there were some stories I knew, but a lot that I didn't know. For instance, HBO was explicitly programming toward men in the 1980s. And that's sort of a tradition that has been really hard to shake off over the decades. And that's something that was sort of just hiding in plain sight to me. I didn't realize that there were explicit directives. We are programming to the man of the household, not the woman of the household. And there are just so many origin stories to so many of these series that I just did not know. There was a 1996 movie called If These Walls Could Talk, starring Demi Moore at the height of her celebrity. And it was about abortion. And that was not a topic that HBO thought would really drive big numbers, especially because men watch HBO for the most part. But this miniseries about abortion scored the biggest ratings ever of an HBO original production. It made HBO executives say, huh, well, that's not what we expected. We only programmed this because we just wanted Demi Moore on our airwaves. Maybe we should go out and look for more shows about women. And just a few weeks after that, HBO made a deal to adapt a series of a book uh, consisting of a series of columns by Candace Bushnell called Sex in the City. Right. Yeah. And then you also you make sure in the book to kind of highlight some of the the women programming executives that, that found success despite maybe the the culture there not being um, as welcoming as it might be today. Completely, um, HBO has had a rich history of strong women executives within its programming department, and yet, like it's so many media companies in the '80s, the '90s, and the 2000s, those women really made it to the top. You know, they, there was a tradition where you get higher and higher in the corporate hierarchy, and then your career would either stall right there or you just get quietly pushed out. And that is a theme that we really interrogate in our book. So I think I read something that uh, you said your favorite HBO show was The Sopranos. And so I'm not going to ask you what your favorite HBO show is, but wanted to get your thoughts on maybe what's like a hidden gem of an HBO program that you felt never got its due. It's a show that uh, was canceled after one season, and then it got a second season a few years ago, and it also didn't do well. But the comeback starring Lisa Kudrow, <laughs> okay. it was Lisa Kudrow's first post Friends starring appearance, and she co-created the show with Michael Patrick King, who was hugely influential with Sex in the City. It's just such a great show. It's brilliant. Both seasons of it are really brilliant. And it's a show that if you've watched it, you're probably a huge fan of it, but most people haven't. It's on HBO Max. I really recommend checking it out. I remember watching the uh, the first season, and I thought it was hilarious, and I felt like I was using the term cringe before, like, you know, now everyone says things are cringy, but that was like my first experience with something that was like cringe funny. <laughs> Completely. Right. So definitely, yeah, I got to watch season two of the comeback. Well, John, I got to say, I really enjoyed the book. I read it pretty quickly. One of the best compliments I guess I could give was I was reading it on the couch and I got up to do something and then my wife picked it up and she started reading it from the beginning and didn't want to give it back. So that's probably one of the, the best compliments I could give it. Uh, John, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Uh, that is a great endorsement and thank you so much for having me on. That was John Coblin. He's the co-author of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. It's available everywhere books are sold. On 
I'm so ready for Succession to come back. Who's with me? Quick reminder to check out theartsection.org, the show's website. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm being joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Shakespeare's Measure for Measure is reimagined in a new production at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Instead of 17th century Italy, this version is set in 1950s Cuba. And from what I understand, the experience begins as soon as patrons arrive. The company's courtyard theater has taken the form of a Havana nightclub, and there's a pre-play floor show. The music for the production comes from Chicago's own Orbert Davis. He hosts a program here on WDCB on Friday nights. Measure for Measure is directed by Henry Godinez, who was born in Cuba. I think I read somewhere that he has kind of a personal attachment to this project. And Jonathan, we'll start with you, and I just want to give a, a spoiler warning because I think that's something you're going to talk about. So for any listeners out there that don't want anything spoiled, turn the volume down for a couple minutes. Jonathan, what did you think? Yes, it does open with a wonderful scene in the Havana nightclub with uh, music by not only Orbert Davis, but also by uh, Jorge Amado Molina. Uh, they're working as a team. So that is uh, the, the opening beat. But uh, I want to jump to the end of the play. Because at the end of Measure for Measure, the heroine, Isabel, typically leaves the nunnery where she's a novice to take the hand of the Duke in a surprise happy ending. But in this high-concept production, and I think, Carrie, we have to call it a, a concept production. Oh, yes. Yeah, in this production, she's as taken aback by the Duke's unexpected approaches as she is earlier by those of Angelo, her would-be despoiler. She does, at the end, leave the nunnery. She throws down her wimple, not in any dialogue or action specified by Shakespeare, but she throws down her wimple in an ending devised by director Henry Godinus to join the brewing revolution against the Duke. Uh, because, as you have noted, Gary, this is set in 1950s Havana, Cuba, before the revolution, rather than in Shakespeare's highly fictional European city. And I have to tell you, it seems a fraught concept to me, based on politics rather than the passions of the play, which Godinus has cut by at least one-third, and perhaps even more, because the running time is only 100 minutes straight through. Now, I don't disagree with what I interpret to be his political ideas, but I feel he's distorted the play too much to fit his concept. You know, it's kind of like the stepsister in Cinderella, the original version of Cinderella, who cuts off her toes in order for her foot 
to fit into the glass slipper. That was something of my reaction to this. Boy, Gary, I can't what's your I, first I, did, did you happen to see Bob Falls' production in 2013 at the Goodman, Jonathan? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, so I can't radical... I'm like, yeah, that was, by, by comparison, you know, Godinez is, is, uh, is letting Isabella off is easy, I would say. <laughs> is it too much of a spoiler to mention that at the end of Bob Falls' production, which was I think quite controversial at the time, and it was set in sort of this 1970s, think the deuce, you know, David Simon's HBO series, Times Square, very seedy, dark world. Isabella is actually killed at the end of that production. So here at least she's alive. (laughs) Um, I agree, if you're a purist, this is probably not the production for you. I have to say, I have always found Measure for Measure the most unpleasant of what we now have come to think of as Shakespeare's problem plays. Nobody at the end of the play ends up with anyone, with the, perhaps the exception of uh, Isabella's brother, Claudio, who's been imprisoned for impregnating his fiance and is kind of the cause of the substitute duke, shall we say, Angelo, offering, you know, this, I will spare your brother's life if you sacrifice your virginity to me, that nobody ends up with anyone that you're comfortable with. So the duke's offer of marriage has always made me feel like, ew. <laughs> you know? So it's a, it's a fair question as to whether, you know, it's... it's uh, it's appropriate to take these kinds of liberties, but I figure Shakespeare's been dead a few years, and he's probably not going to squawk. And, you know, there there have been plenty of more traditional you know productions along the way that if you're interested in seeing something that kind of looks at it through, I would agree with you, Jonathan, a pretty radically different lens, um, then this might be one to take a chance on. And the music is, is pretty spectacular, as is, I think, the uh, the ensemble throughout is very, very solid. Interesting commentary on colorism, even in you know, revolu- you know societies that are poised on the ed- edge of revolution, and that's certainly something Adina's in a in an interview in the program talks about when he returned to Cuba as, as an adult. You know, being confronted by the fact that this communist nation still has colorism, they still have sexism. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, anti-LGBTQ activism on the part of Castro and Che Guevara. So all of that is kind of hinted at here. Whether any of it gets spun out as fully as it could in the 100 minutes, I think is also a fair, you know, is a fair cop. But I, I have to say, I, I quite enjoyed it, and I, um, I appreciated that they left this sort of, I guess we call it ambiguity with Isabel, or at least giving her some agency at the end that perhaps Shakespeare did not feel that he could, because you know, everyone must be paired off, the world must be peopled, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to continue talking about the what I believe are the chief political ideas of the production, which uh, and and I, I I don't mean this to contradict you, but I don't want listeners to have the impression that this is somehow specifically about the Castro Revolution. It uh, it's not. It's more vague than that. And I, I think the first major political idea that Godinus is is bringing up and pointing out is that there is no difference between political extremes of the right and the left, they all end up as repressive fascistic regimes. Mm -hmm. He makes this point by dressing the conservative Angelo, the Mm -hmm. enforcer of the law, the strict laws, and his Angelo's enforcers, his thugs, he dresses them in Fidel Castro-like army fatigues throughout the play, even though they are conservatives. And then he also, Bodinus also has uses projected film at the end, showing revolutions of both extremes, from the Castro Revolution to that of the Ayatollah in, in Iran. His second chief idea, certainly, is that all men manipulate women. I think Shakespeare doesn't want to look that directly in the face. 
all the women in Measure for Measure are manipulated or victimized, or both, by the men, chiefly the virginal Isabel, but also even the bawds in the play. Mm -hmm. And when Isabel throws down her wimple at the end of the play, we don't know if she's joining the revolution in order to preserve her virginity or to offer it up, to lose it to a revolutionary of her choice. But the thing is, it needs to be her choice, and that's Mm -hmm. the operative principle. Right. There is a reference. I think one of the most haunting sections, the prisoner Barnadine, who's kind of been institutionalized for a very long time, is offered a chance to kind of put down his life so that Angelo can be can be spared. Uh, Bernadine does not take take this offer. And the actor who's playing Barnadine is kind of using this graffiti. And I had to look this up because I didn't know exactly what it meant. He's inscribing U59, me 2020 on the walls of his cell. And we see this projected along with projections of other shadowy prisoners standing in kind of this periphery around him. This is a reference I found out to Cuba's San Isidro movement, which is a contemporary group of nonconformist artists who are fighting for free expression on the island. So that is a more direct uh, shout-out reference, I would say, to both contemporary Cuba and then what was happening around the time of the revolution. Again, you know, one of the things Godinez talks about is, you know, as you mentioned, Jonathan, when you get extremes of politics, human rights too sadly get trampled in the, you know, the search of the ideals. I would say if you if you scratch, you know, a purist, you will find a nihilist. You know, if we can't have it absolutely pure the way we want, then we're just going to burn it down. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, I'm curious to know what they think the next chapter might be for Isabel. And I guess I would, for myself, having always been so squicked out, quite frankly, by the way this play ends, I'm kind of happy to see that ambiguity rather than her, you know, shoehorned into this, you know, relationship with the Duke, who's kind of used creepy means to uh, insinuate himself into her life. So there is some stuff here, obviously, about surveillance state and who has control. Let's pause here for a second and listen to a, a clip from Measure for Measure. In this scene from Act Two, we'll hear Isabel rebuff Angelo's advances. I love you. (laughs) My brother did love Juliet, and you tell me he shall die for it. He shall not, Isabel, if you give me love. I know your virtue hath a license in it, which seems a little fouler than it is to pluck on others. Believe me, by mine honor, my words express my purpose. Little honor to be much believed, and most pernicious purpose, seeming... Seeming, I will proclaim the Angelo, look for it. Sign me a present pardon for my brother, or with an outstretched throat, I'll tell the world aloud what man thou art. Who will believe thee, Isabel? That was a scene from Chicago Shakespeare Theater's new production of Measure for Measure. I actually wanted to say that I think the acting throughout is fine. and I, I don't know what your take on it was, Jonathan, but I thought Cruz gonzalez Cadell, who is a company member at Teatro Vista and has appeared in many, many shows around town, did an excellent job as Isabel. And, um, you know, throughout, I thought there was some very strong work, including from Kevin Goodall, who is a longtime Chicago Shakes, you know, stalwart as the Duke. Um, but what were your takes on that, Jonathan? Well, I, I, I thought the company was was okay, but uh, I, I there's a mood or tempo switch in the play, which frankly let me down. Uh, you know, the production opens with this really splashy scene in the nightclub and uh, where Isabel's brother, Claudio, is a suave singer 
and his arrest almost immediately after under the city's long ignored lechery laws really sets the plot in motion and you have all this wonderful jazz yeah. music we've already mentioned but then there's a radical change in tempo and mood as production moves into the text of the play itself even though it's a greatly cut down reduced text and it's something of an energy letdown yeah. for me despite the splashes of music which still occasionally pop up between the scenes now the physical production uses wonderful projections of 1950s Havana streets and buildings by Rashawn Devante Johnson. And they provide really much warmth and atmosphere to the, to the play, along with the lighting by Maria Cristina Fuste. But as you've already noted, Gary, Measure for Measure is Shakespeare's coldest, iciest play. And these production elements really aren't enough to warm up the show especially with the way the comedy scenes have been trimmed and how how bawdy the comedy scenes are to begin with. So for me, Measure for Measure is something of a mixed bag. You know, it'll make you think, but I'm not sure it'll make you feel. I'm not sure you can ever feel in this play, quite honestly, Jonathan. I mean, is anybody in, the, in this play getting hooked up in any way that doesn't make you go, well, that's not right? Again, except for maybe Claudio and Julia. You know, it's not a romance. Play. It is not a romance. <laughs> this is not a love story, I think. <laughs> no matter how much, you know, we're, because it's not like the sparring, you know, in, in Much Ado About Nothing, where you know it's like Benedict and, and uh Beatrice, they, they, they belong together no matter how much they pretend to hate each other. Like, we are rooting for them to figure it out. Here again, I can just say, I was just rooting for Isabella to make it out alive. <laughs> you know, because, and, out, and away from the men who are, you know, trying to suffocate and, and perhaps literally, we don't know. I mean, Angelo seems to have a very dark streak to him. So, yeah, I, I don't think that it will, again, please purists, but I think if you're willing to take a shot at a, at a different... Uh, different approach than this this might be the show for you okay so a split decision chicago shakespeare's reimagined measure for measure continues through november 27th moving on jonathan you have a, a pick this week that is the mark of cain k-a-n-e not the biblical cain the mark of cain as in bob cain the man who all his adult life claimed that he was the sole inventor of the character Batman, the comic book franchise, which indeed made him both rich and famous. But he was not at all the sole creator of Batman. And The Mark of Cain is a world premiere about the backstory of Batman, and it takes place between 1939, when the character made his first appearance, uh, to uh, nearly contemporary times in the early 2000s. Batman is part of one of the icons of American popular culture, uh, absolutely. For for comic strip, comic book lovers, there is a tremendous amount of information here, stuff you probably didn't know. The production, despite the, let's call it the structural issues of the play, really does hold audience attention. So uh, it's on my list of plays to recommend, especially if you're into comics. And listeners should stay tuned. I actually caught up with Mark Pratt, the writer behind that uh, Batman play, The Mark of Cain, so stay tuned for that. That's coming up in a little bit right here on the art section. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. Gary. 
I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the Arts Section. Chicago-based Three Arts is in celebration mode. The grant-making organization will be presenting its annual awards celebration virtually on Monday. The event caps off an exciting period of giving as Three Arts will award close to $500,000 in unrestricted cash grants to local artists. Over the past 15 years, Three Arts has supported more than 1,800 creatives with a focus on women, artists of color, and deaf and disabled artists who work in the six-county Chicago metro area. Three Arts Executive Director Esther Grimm says the goal has always really been to help underrepresented artists. I recently checked in with Grimm to talk about this year's award celebration and a few of the organization's milestones. I feel like there's a, a lot of milestones converging for Three Arts right now. This is the 15th anniversary of the Three Arts Awards. I believe it's your 20th anniversary as uh, the executive director of Three Arts, and it's the uh, it's the organization's 110th anniversary. Is that accurate? Yes, it all is accurate. It's hard to keep straight, isn't it? But there are a lot of milestones. Yeah, we're one of the rare ancient organizations in the arts in Chicago, 110 years old. And I am not 110, but I am <laughs> celebrating my 20th. <laughs> um, and it's been a wonderful 20 years to, you know, start from scratch with Three Arts and help build the organization to what it is today. And so we don't have to do a, a deep, comprehensive dive on this. I know people can find information on the, the website, but just for listeners maybe unfamiliar with the origin story, what led to the uh, the establishment of the Three Arts Club back in 1912? It's a great origin story. The founding mothers, as I like to call them, were Jane Adams of the Settlement House Movement, the famous Jane Adams, and about 30, 31 other women leaders, uh, the wives of the industrialists who built Chicago, who got together with an aim of trying to figure out how to help women uh, make inroads into, you know, male-dominated culture, basically. At a time, this was in 1912, this is eight years before women had the right to vote. It was impossible unless you were extremely wealthy and had an entourage to travel with you to go from, you know, major city to major city to experience the arts, to get into training programs, to learn how to sing. And so the concept was um, to set up a three arts club called the Three Arts Club of Chicago that would join a network of about seven others located around the world so that young women could travel from one urban center to the next, stay in a safe, uh, you know, building uh, with tea served on Sundays under the watchful eyes of the directress, which is what I would have been called in those olden days. And those arts clubs were in London, Paris, New York, Philadelphia, L.A., Chicago, and we think possibly in both Cincinnati and Cleveland, but I'm not sure because very few documents exist about the history of, of that. So, but that was the idea, and our organization started out in a beautiful home, in the Gold Coast neighborhood of the city of Chicago. And then that home was overflowing with young women scrambling to get in pretty soon. And so one of the board members, Glesselin Jones's dad, who was a zinc magnate, bought the land and provided a loan to the organization to build the Three Arts Club of Chicago, to build its own home for our organization. And that home housed, gosh, Gary, I think somewhere around 
13 to 16,000 women coming to stay in Chicago on a temporary basis, sometimes for a whole school year, as they study the arts in our community. And the building still stands. It's at Dearborn and Goethe, and it is a landmarked building, so I hope it will stand forever and ever. But our organization sold the property back in 2007 and used the net proceeds from the sale to start this new, then new effort, Three Arts. And then just really quickly, so did the other three arts clubs, do they still exist around the world? That's a great question. Our nearest relatives closed in 1953, and that was the New York Club. The clubs in London and Paris, I think, were really overrun in the World Wars. Ah. And the club in L.A., from what I understand, was actually leveled in the building of the freeway system out there. But I did visit the last building that was known to be the Three Arts Club on I think it was on the Upper West Side in New York, just to, you know, check it out and to see if they might possess any of the old archives, which sadly they didn't. But there are some great newspaper articles about various soirees that took place in that building. And so basically what you see is the changing times over the 20th century where the need, the demand for such clubs was dwindling a little bit because, of course, women could travel freely, could book a room in a hotel anywhere they wanted, could enter into, you know, dance, music, theater, visual arts training programs in schools all over the country. So there was a a kind of, the need was changing. But interestingly, the Three Arts Club of Chicago kept going because we were a kind of alternative dormitory for the downtown art schools that didn't yet have state-of-the-art dorms built, which I think they did in about the mid-90s. And so we just kept moving forward until we made the decision that we either needed to renovate and restore the property, which had nothing but deferred maintenance over (laughs) the century of its existence, which was a very expensive proposition, or we had to let go of the property in order to preserve the organization, which is what we ultimately did. I find that backstory so interesting, so thanks for for sharing some of that. We'll fast forward a a little bit. Obviously, a lot has changed over the decades, as you alluded to. The, The Three Arts Award program was introduced 15 years ago. And so that was during your your tenure. What was the the impetus to to start the awards? Well, it really has to do with the transition from the Three Arts Club to Three Art. This was an incredible time period with, uh, I think there were two of us on staff at the time and a handful of board members. And the question, once we sold the property, of course, was what do we do now? And we decided to really build on the founding mission. So we were thinking about continuing our support of women artists, continuing initially in the three art forms that were part of the name of our organization, so that's music, theater, and visual arts. We were thinking about the kind of social justice aims of the founding mothers, you know, that they wanted to change the composition of mainstream culture. They really wanted to think about who's underrepresented in the arts and change that. So we riffed on all of that with the mission. And interestingly, the mission has not changed, Gary, in these 15 years, but it did spur this idea of, okay, how do we support women? And is it only women that we should be supporting? Who else is underrepresented in scholarship or awards programs? And we discovered rapidly, um, especially in those days, people of color, deaf and disabled artists. We couldn't find so many of those groups of artists being supported in awards programs. And we were thinking about awards because we wanted to directly support individual artists, again, honoring the founding 
principles of the mission. That's kind of where it came from. And so we landed on this idea of unrestricted awards. It didn't materialize from thin air, nor did it materialize straight from the history, but materialized after about, I don't remember anymore, but maybe about nine months of doing some research. Who gives to individual artists? What are the foundations or nonprofit grant makers that do that? And I was... um, you know, sent off to go meet with some of them. And they were kind of ad hoc advisors. I I went to New York and I sat at a dinner table with about seven of the folks who had, who were the real um, originators of this idea of giving direct funds to individual artists. And they said, look, this is what I think we want to do. And they each contributed their ideas and their experience. So I came home armed with all of that, and from that, the Three Arts Awards were born. And in the early days, there were we were in music, theater, and visual art. We gave six $15,000 awards, so two in each discipline. By 2010, we had doubled the number of awards to 12. We'd added, I think, dance, and then teaching arts came. And then post-recession, we settled into 10 awards each year, and they kept getting bigger. So every few years, we try to account for cost of living, we increase the awards, and now we're up to $30,000 unrestricted awards, which is very much kind of significant, you know, national level. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Esther Grimm, the executive director of Three Arts. Ten new artists were recently announced as this year's Three Arts Award recipients. What goes into the decision-making process for who gets the awards? glad you asked that because it's actually about a nine-month-long process. You know, we start up the engines in the first part of the year in selecting 35 local artists, art leaders, presenters, curators who serve as anonymous nominators. And we ask them with a few criteria to think about who are artists that they're excited about. And they go off and they each nominate in their discipline, sometimes across disciplines, three artists apiece. Then those artists receive a letter from us or an email from us that says, surprise, you've been nominated for a Three Arts Award. Here is a link to apply for the award. So that's a big chunk of the first part of the process. The second part is artists get about, oh, it varies a little bit, but up to eight weeks to complete an application, which is kind of deceptively simple. While that's going on, we are finalizing five national jury panels who make the decisions. And the panelists are themselves also artists, practitioners, uh, curators, presenters, etc. They spend the day together. Sometimes it's a really, many times, a really difficult day to look at these incredible artists. There are about 21 on the table in each discipline and decide on two who will receive the award and one who will be an honorable mention. And before you ask, the honorable mention is never made public. It's somebody who will automatically be invited into next year's process. Oh, okay. So all of that happens by end of summer, and then we begin, we let all of the awardees know, and then we begin the process of creating the video interviews that you see on our website and developing the galleries for each of the artists that are on our website, too, because a big part of Three Arts is to promote the artists in our network, to promote Chicago artists nationally and internationally, and to try and pump up the volume on the incredible artists who are working among us. And then part of that effort also then will take place on November 7th. There's an awards event, and if I'm not mistaken, this used to be in person. It's kind of shifted to virtual. 
we always conceived of it as a kind of community-wide celebration of Chicago creatives, and in particular, these awardees who were featured. And the idea when we were in person was, you know, we're going to feel the warmth in the room and applaud them and hear them speak and see them perform and all of that. And then came the pandemic, and we shifted gears, as did a lot of organizations, and created an online event. And it was so surprising, Gary, because I think about... I can't remember the exact number, but it was about 700 people registered for the event, which when we're in person, you know, we fill about a 300-seat theater. That was kind of great. And as the pandemic continued in 2021, we did the same again. It was really a tough decision in October of 2021 when we're drafting the budget for 2022. Do we go back to an in-person event or do we stay online? And we just could not predict how COVID was going to be going. We made the decision to stay online. I will tell you that November 7th, you're going to see live streaming on YouTube at 6 p.m. Chicago time, Monday evening, and, and audiences will meet the 10 newest Three Arts Awardees. But also, we have a Make-A-Wave program in which the prior year's Three Arts Awardees pick unencumbered by the institutional gatekeeper, so to speak. They pick another 10 artists who they think is making really good work in the Chicago community, and those artists get surprised two thousand dollar grant so you'll meet the 10 make a wave awardees and then three next level spare room awardees and this is a new program in which we are awarding second grants to past three arts awardees and these grants are fifty thousand dollars and all of those artists all 23 of the artists will be celebrated on monday and just to tell you a little bit about what's coming is we're already beginning to plan a return to an in-person event next year on November 13th, and we're fashioning it as a kind of reunion homecoming, so to speak. Exciting times. Esther, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Gary, same to you. Thanks so much for taking time and for having me on your great show. That's Esther Grimm. She's the executive director of Three Arts. The organization's 15th annual awards celebration is set to take place virtually on Monday, November 7th at 6 p.m. Central Time. You can watch the event on YouTube and find more information at threearts.org. That's the numeral three, A-R-T-S dot org. You're listening to WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. The origins of Batman are explored in a world premiere play that just opened at City Lit Theater. Many people know the story of how Bruce Wayne was inspired to become the caped crusader after witnessing his parents' murder as a child. Fewer people are likely aware of the story behind the creation of the iconic character. Batman debuted in Detective Comics number 27 in May of 1939. Comic book artist Bob Kane is often credited as the creator of Batman, but there was another person there from the beginning. A man named Bill Finger not only helped create the Dark Knight, he's also believed to be responsible for some of the character's most well-known features. But for reasons that are somewhat murky, Finger became a forgotten man while Kane enjoyed immense fame and fortune because of Batman's immense popularity over the decades. That relationship is the focus of the new play, The Mark of Kane. The first thing I ever remember reading on my own was actually a Batman comic book, The Brave and the Bold, number 147. I remember very vividly reading that comic for the very first time. You know, it was the first time I sat down as a child and read something all on my own. This is Mark Pratt, 
the theater artist and longtime Batman fan who wrote The Mark of Cain. I recently caught up with him at a coffee shop in the Uptown neighborhood to talk about the inspiration for this new play. First time I had an inkling of doing something like this was, it was actually two visits to the San Diego Comic-Con in 2006. I went to a panel that was called the Golden Age Batman panel, and it was many of the creators who actually appear in the play. Um, That panel is actually sort of the framing device for the entire show, and uh, with a few changes. What was really funny was I sat down and listened to this panel, and about five, ten minutes in, they just all started talking about kind of these horrible things Bob Kane had done and these funny quirks about Bob Kane, and uh, they brought up a name, Bill Finger, which at that time I'd never heard of. Uh, That led me down exploring that. And then it was, uh, I think it was 2012, I was at the same convention, San Diego Comic-Con, and I went to a panel for a book that was written by Mark Tyler Nobleman called Bill the Boy Wonder. It's a children's book, an illustrated children's book, and I was just fascinated by what he was talking about. He was talking about this man who had toiled for years without any credit and had been instrumental in the creation of this character that everyone loved and everyone knows and that is making gazillions of dollars and he'd never received a dime for that, and he had never been given any credit. We were on the flight back with my friend, and I just said, there's a play in this. And frankly, it was uh, spring of 2020, and I was supposed to do a play, and the pandemic shut everything down, and I was like, I need to find something to do. So I sat down and I started writing it, and finished it, and then finished two more, and that's how we get the whole trilogy of plays that City Lit's doing over the next three years. Right, and I'm going to talk about the the trilogy, but just you know, back to this story behind the story, because I think everyone listening knows Batman, and then a smaller percentage knows Bob Kane as the creator. But then, yeah, this secondary figure, without giving anything away, but what do we know about the the dynamic between the two of those? Why did Bill Finger fall out? That is a really interesting question. There is so little material, uh, direct first person material with Bill Finger that it really became sort of a detective game and an imagination exercise in why would you do this? Why would you, why would you make these choices? It, it's very clear that Bob Kane got the assignment to do this six-page story in Detective Comics 27, which was where Batman originated. He, from what I can tell, he came up with the name and he went to his friend Bill and over the course of three days, one weekend, they created this story and everything sprang from that. But when Bob went in and sold it, when he went into DC Comics and said, you know, here's the character, he said it was just him. Bill continued to work with him for many years and continued to work completely under Bob Kane's credit, which is interesting. I mean, when you talk about early comics, we talk about it in the show, there are a lot of situations where there's studios. Um, Eisner and Iger, Simon and Kirby, even Siegel and Schuster, who did Superman, had the same thing, where they had many people working underneath them and under their credit. But as Jerry Robinson, who's one of the old-time comic guys in the play, says, it wasn't exactly the same thing because most of those guys were doing like backgrounds or doing the coloring or inking or whatever. But in this case, it really does seem like uh, Bob had Bill and a few other writers writing on the stories, 
And then there was a group of artists that included Jerry Robinson, uh, Shelley Moldoff, Dick Sprang, who were doing virtually all the artwork. It becomes very hard to figure out exactly what Bob Kane was doing, mm. other than just making the deals. Right. I could go on and on, sure. but you know, also that when they do have work that is Bob Kane's, and they know it's Bob Kane's, people have gone through and shown where he's traced it over other comic book strips and the infamous image on the cover of Detective 27 with Batman swinging in holding a guy uh, is actually a tracing of a Flash Gordon comic strip image. So I guess to answer your question, no one really knows why Bill agreed to this, but it kind of defined his life or didn't define his life, you know. I mean, who could have imagined 1939 that this character would transcend for eight decades did Bob Kane then just have the foresight to know that having the sole ownership would be this important? Um, apparently so. He had a foresight that eluded virtually anyone else in the industry. Uh, uh, there's a contract, apparently, between Bob Kane and DC Comics and now Bob Kane's estate that guarantees him credit and guarantees him some percentage of the character. Virtually no one else had that. Siegel and Schuster, who did Superman, did not have that. They famously sold Superman originally for $130. And they went on to make a lot of money because they were paid very well to continue to make Superman, but they didn't, they didn't get any of the profits. But somehow Bob Kane did. And I think what's really interesting is that dichotomy is that here's Bob Kane, who somehow had this foresight to maintain some ownership of what he did, and yet he was using all of these other people and not really doing the work himself. It's a fascinating thing. I find Bob Kane fascinating. Yeah. If you watch any of those 90s Batman movies or even the Christopher Nolan ones, you'll see a credit based on a character created by Bob Kane. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, the, that aspect of it is pretty huge. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely huge. Bob Kane did very well for himself in the comics, but uh, Bob Kane got rich when the TV show hit in the 60s. That was when the money really started rolling in for him. And, and thankfully now, uh, and this is, it's beyond the purview of the show, after, after the, sh the show ends with Bob and Bill. Once their stories are over, I didn't go into the, what happened later. But thankfully in 2017, they did begin giving Bill Finger credit. It was a deal was arranged. It, so now it reads Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Although many people would say that should have been reversed. I did read that, that I think it's his granddaughter. She didn't even really know what was going on. She had this whole uh, fight. But just to give listeners a sense then, what is the play focus on then? The interaction between Bill and Bob at the, the dawn of Batman? Correct. My interest in the story was in really sort of the psychology of the two guys. Why, why would Bill allow himself to be placed in the situation? Why did Bob think that that was okay? Um, and how that affected those two men. Like Mark Nobleman, who wrote that, the book, the Build a Boy Wonder book, became a very huge advocate for getting him credit. And he was the one who actually found Athena Finger, who was Bill's granddaughter, and was able to uh, assert the change in the credit. All of, that, all of that is a great story, but that is not the story that I thought was interesting. I think it's interesting, these two men. Mark Tyler Nobleman puts it the best way. It's a Cain and Abel story. It's one artist exploiting another artist. And we've seen so many stories about, you know, the Siegel and Schuster story. A large corporation takes advantage of an artist 
And this was a story about an artist taking advantage of another artist, and I thought that that was really interesting. So yeah, it, the entire play encompasses those two men. The framing sequences go into the 2000s, but really the narrative is from 1939 to 1974. What was the research process? It sounds like you already had like a foundational interest in the, the subject matter, but then did you have to go back and find stuff? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time reading everything I could. Like I said, there's so little direct first-person information about Bill Finger, but there was a couple of things that I went back and I looked at, and it was uh, he, in 1965, the very first Comic-Con that was ever held in New York City, Bill was one of the guests and he actually did a, a panel, Q&A panel, and so he, I found a transcript of that, and that was very interesting in terms of digging into his thought process. And then Jim Steranko, who was one of the big artists of the Marvel in the 60s, he did a, a book called The History of Comics, where he did a long interview with Bill. And so both of those were useful, um, just in getting into the idea of what, how Bill thought. I had books and books and books of stuff. Everything I could read about Bill or Bob, I did. The hard part is just like, as I said, there's so little about Bill. There's so little from Bill. So you just have to exercise your imagination. You know, you put yourself into his position and be like, okay, if this, if this opportunity happened to me and I was 21 years old and, you know, the kind of guy who sat in a library basement in the science fiction club talking about Edgar R. Burroughs and pulp magazines and wanting to write our own stories and somebody came and said, oh yeah, I'll let you do that. Would you jump in with both feet and not really think about it? And I think that's kind of what he did. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Mark Pratt. He's the theater artist behind the world premiere play The Mark of Cain, which is currently playing at City Lit Theater in Chicago. And then how did the partnership with City Lit come about? I have done many shows at City Lit as an actor. Um, uh, I'm, I consider myself pretty good friends with Terry McCabe, the artistic director. And quite literally, uh, I was working on all of these plays, and uh, I was constantly looking for feedback. And I sent them to him, and I said, I literally said, I said, Terry, I don't think these are probably something that you'd want to do or look at, but I am... I, I'm, value your opinion and I just like some feedback and and at that point uh, he was like well when you finish all three send them to me and after I did he said he wanted to do them so I was very happy with that and that led to a year of rapidly trying to make them better (laughs) and then is there um, you mentioned you referenced earlier this is uh, the first part of a a trilogy so is there a, a through line between all three or are you exploring a certain central theme it's it's a thematic trilogy um, so it's about important events in the history of comic books. And it somewhat falls into a era sort of thing. This film, the central activity, comic activity, the creation of Batman, is like 30s, 40s. The second play, which is going to be called The Innocence of Seduction, uh, is about the 1950s juvenile delinquency scare where Dr. Frederick Wortham wrote the book The Seduction of the Innocent, which was about how comic books were turning kids into raving maniacs and and homosexuals and, and juvenile delinquents. And that led to uh, literal Senate hearings where uh, publishers were brought in to try to defend their books, specifically Bill Gaines, who was the publisher of EC Comics, who published uh, Tales from the Crypt is probably the 
the famous one, horror comics, crime comics. That, that series of events led to the creation of the Comics Code, which was a self-regulation body, but it also virtually killed the industry. So many companies went out of business and so many people lost all their work. And the third one, uh, which I'm still working on really, is called, at least at the time, right, right now, is called The House of Ideas. And it's about uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and the creation of Marvel Comics, which is like moving it into an era where suddenly you have people working on things that they do understand have some value. And the jockeying for who did what and whose invention was it really and I, it, it kind of comes full circle but uh, I think that there's much more knowledge in the men in that era about the value of what they're creating. And then I know we're at the kind of the beginning your play the first play just opened and this will take place over years but what do you think the future holds for this project? I would love it uh, if uh, other companies would want to take a run at it you know I I've agreed, we're doing the three shows over three years as a world premiere, so for three years I'm basically focused on this, getting all three done for City Lit, but I would, I would love to see other companies do it. I, it's that dream of, like, I, it would be really interesting to see somebody do them all in rep together, you know, and have like the same cast, same set things. I, the shows are written to use a lot of projections, and mainly because it's comics or a visual medium. So I wanted to have some sort of sense of there's visual working against the words. So and it's very successful in the show. So I'm I'm really excited to see what we do next year. That's Mark Pratt. He's the writer behind the world premiere play The Mark of Cain. It's running at City Lit Theater through December 4th. You can find more information at citylit.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.